Hugh, we're back again. Another episode. We do have another guest. And uh, as usual, super excited to have uh, a guest with us to talk about their career. Uh, we have with us Wayne Shipley. He's the studio director at Stitch Media. Uh, uh, Hugh, uh, Wayne and I met um, a few years ago. I guess uh, initially we met through uh, the Transmedia Zone at Ryerson. Uh, and then... Uh, Oddly enough, it turns out that I'm now teaching a course at Ryerson that Wayne used to teach. Uh, so we had another connection there. And as we have now worked together a few times, uh, we've begun to realize that we have a lot more in common. Hannah, and I thought, you know what? Wayne is going to be an awesome guest and is going to have be a lot of fun to talk about uh, game design, um, story, and narrative. So Wayne, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um... Why don't you tell people a little bit more about what you do over at Stitch? You're listening to the Can't Sell This Podcast with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Sure, yeah. I mean... You know, you, you gave me a pretty good introduction already. Uh, if you read my, my business card... It says uh, studio director on it, but realistically, uh, game designer, game director mm -hmm. these days. Um, you know, Stitch is a company where that I've been at now for about nine years, and uh, I've done a lot of different things in that time. And um, the company now sort of has like two sides of of the business. There's a more client based. Uh, interactive side where we do, you know, web games and interactive apps and interactive documentary and things like that. And we have a game side now where we're making our own game properties. And that's oh, nice. uh, for the last about four years where more or less all of my, all of my time has gone um, making video games. So, you know, I, I design them, I lead the teams, I, I direct them. And uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a pretty crazy adventure, uh, you know, because it, it has been all those things, but it's also like spinning up this side of an established business that is, mm -hmm. you know, entirely new for, for the company um, in a lot of ways. And, and you were developing all those properties in-house, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was the big thing. You know, we, we'd done client work for so long and a lot of really amazing, fun stuff mm -hmm. to work on. Um, but we wanted to make our own properties and we wanted to develop things in house that we owned and that we could, could sell or, you know, not sell sometimes, but, uh, <laughs> uh, the desire was, was, yeah, to make our own stuff and to do some bigger projects that, that we didn't have, uh, a client for always, which mm. as, as I'm sure both of you know, can be good or bad. Uh, and sometimes you end up with a client anyway, but well, and you're and, so, and you're, you're wor your own worst client half the time when you right. do stuff for yourself, you know. Oh, big time! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we're actually just now nearing the end of production on a pretty cool VR game called Flow Weaver that uh, we released a new gameplay trailer for just about a week ago. Um, that'll be coming out quarter one 2021 for oculus headsets hmm. so that's what i've been laboring over through all of uh covid 
period oh, wow. uh, from this basement that you see me sitting in. Uh, <laughs> and we also have a, sort of a really cartoony action puzzler called Terrarium, um, where you can build and share your own levels with other players and you sort of run around these puzzle-like maps full of dangerous plant creatures. Uh, it's a game about gardening in space. And uh, my first game was a collectible card game called Rival Books of Aster that sort of has this really cool medieval style to it and is really based around um, translation and the power of words and um, storytelling emerging through gameplay, through this book that you build as you play. I remember um, seeing the Rival Books of Aster at a um, Interactive Ontario, um, I guess, sort of beating uh, and I was really taken in by the 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 artwork and just the, the the display you guys had for that game. And and I think that was I mean I had heard of Stitch before. I think at this point I'd I'd met Evan, uh, one of the founders, uh, and and uh, who you and I well I mean obviously you work with him, but uh, but uh, you know we had worked together before. Um, but I remember I remember seeing that and realizing that you guys had made that sort of. Um, larger shift towards uh your own ip and uh and it was yeah very very cool looking yeah that was the that was the beginning of that shift of, mm-hmm. of the we want to be a games company uh endeavor and uh it was pretty ambitious uh if anyone listening is thinking of getting into games don't make a collectible card game is your first game (laughs) where you need a large player base to keep it going because as good as it is it's it's so hard um but yeah it's uh it's based on actual medieval manuscripts these like books of the dead and like quasi religious texts um weird peeled through those for inspiration to get like names of characters and basic storylines and just descriptions of weird creatures that then uh, became our card art. A really amazing um, uh, Toronto artist named Lockie Reed, who is a professor at OCAD, who did almost 200 pieces of illustrative art for that game by himself. He did, he did have a few of his students working under him, like setting up illustrations that then he would pick up and finish uh, in a lot of cases. But I was just amazing at the work that that guy could churn out. Uh, And yeah, one of the hallmarks of the game is definitely these four sort of unique art styles that tie back to these books we were using for inspiration. You know, there's there's this sort of very um, Da Vinci-esque, like Da Vinci sketchbook style that uses a lot of like gold leaf and, and things like that. And there's these, these weird sort of like um, uh, alchemical type creatures and creations in the art. There's a more of a very uh, watercolory illuminated textile art. That's all of these uh, sort of more like creatures of the earth in this like painterly style, like something you would see drawn in the side of a, a page in an old manuscript. And then, um, and then sort of a more Mesopotamic uh, sort of like a fresco inspired style. But <laughs> this guy just, we gave him these weird descriptions and uh, he helped come up with a lot of them too. But, um, and he just, he just churned them out. You know, we'd be like, what about a, uh, a knight riding a porcupine 
that looks like a pineapple and uh the knight has a dandelion puffed for a head and he'd go oh yeah sure and then he'd you know <laughs> oh, yeah, turn that yeah. out with a dozen other ones for the week sounds right i've been and working on something just amazing. like that <laughs> <laughs> so that was a that was a really cool cool process to be a part of my uh, my game design partner on that game and on terrarium uh is a guy named adam bradley and uh Lockie is a friend of his which is how we we got connected with him in the first place but so much of that game if you check out you know anybody listening if you go to look at it just came out of like the three of us or the two of them having a bottle of wine and just talking about bizarre ideas and then and then you know it was a game about being weird we wanted to make something weird <laughs> so there was kind of like an anything goes uh mantra that we had right um and from that to now flow weaver um would you say would you say you cut your teeth on like funding like finding funding like you know the comfort level of creating deliverables for yourselves like you know you're like i wouldn't start i would not have started this doing a, a card game for instance because it requires the user base so do you feel like those lessons have led you the right way yeah um yes and no because because <laughs> we keep making the same mistakes <laughs> well you make different mistakes you make different yeah, exactly mistakes, right you know? yeah um you know there's always a desire to do everybody wants the thing to be great and to be as much as it can and there's so many ideas and you you know at the outset they all seem possible um mm. but as you get going you realize that uh the challenges of of making a game of that of you know any scale above you know like a, a sort of a web game or a small app or something are they're always unique every every time you make a game they're unique um right. there's just different challenges to figure out and um we I, I did learn a ton about you know how to get one of these things financed and how to work with partners to make that happen and uh how to plan it and how to design it and you know that game the design of the game was the easiest of anything i've done for me so far because that style of game is something that i've been into and thinking about and partaking in for like 25 years now so in many ways that rival books the card game was like the game i've been designing and thinking about for like a decade so that one okay. the design of that came easy the production was difficult and we realized that like making a game like that that needs that kind of a user base is super ambitious and we mm. swore we wouldn't do that again uh our next game terrarium uh we sort of made a, a big leap going from like a 2d to right before production started deciding it was all going to be 3d um which was the mistake we made on the second game, <laughs> which is, which is awesome. When I say mistake, I mean like, you know, the problems that it presents in terms of like needing to, to shift expectations and timelines and deliverables and like everybody on the team's got to learn new workflows and pipelines mm -hmm. and, and yeah. all these crazy things. And it paid off in the end because our, our team is amazing. Um, my, uh, our art director, Jeff, is just like super talented and any style we throw at him the the concept art that he makes and the things he comes up with are just crazy um 
and then you know flow weaver we know a 3d pipeline uh we're gonna we want to make something 3d but now it's in vr which you know as as a is, is just an emerging format so lots of lessons to learn but i, I think that's going to be always the case i mean you know we're a small studio and we work really hard to maintain talent because the the most important thing we have is like we're investing in our small team to learn things and to grow professionally and we need to hold on to those people keep them happy keep them motivated keep them invested in what we're making because um it's so hard to as a small studio to have mm -hmm. a really solid team that you can maintain and carry on from one project to the next because the things we learn every time we make a game are just so vast that you you want to hold those people to apply them to the next project yeah i, I think you see a lot in uh in some of these sort of, um, I mean, uh, companies that have transitioned from being um, media essentially as, as a service uh, that they provide to broadcasters or, or, or um, film studios to create interactive games for other property. And they kind of start off in, the, in this uh, studio makeup that is a singular team, like most small independent indie game studios. And then those teams need to adapt to each new project. And I think that one of the uh, issues you see very often is that um, they'll just outsource and they'll bring in uh, freelancers. And uh, when when I see a company where the bulk of the work uh, or the team working on a project is freelancers, they're not retaining any of that knowledge. They're keeping people for a project, letting them go, and then they can't build on that for the next one. So mm -hmm. to that, you're saying that the team that built Terrarium is the same team that came off of, uh, well, maybe not identical, but the similar team to the one that worked on a book, uh, book of Aster, right? Uh, at the beginning, yes. A few, a, a few of us definitely. Um, it, it is more true of moving from Terrarium to Flow Weaver. Mm. Um, yeah, a couple of our artists and one of our devs and, and, and Jeff and myself obviously carried over to the next one. And now we're thinking ahead now to the, the project that you and I are, are collaborating mm -hmm. on, um, um, you know, just keeping the team invested and, uh, and wanting to put their best into the next thing because, um, you know, Flow Weaver is, I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of it. The trailer looks so good. The game plays really good. It, it, it's amazing to me that our team uh, created that, a team as small as we are. Um, but we had a partner on that. We had a creative partner who sort of like wrote it and set up the world, uh, Silver String Media out of Vancouver. Um, and, you know, I'm invested in the story and everything as well, but there is this sense of it's not the starting point, especially for some of the artists is, oh, well, it's not mine. And don't get me wrong, they work their asses off on it and, and it looks amazing and we're all invested in it. But there is this sense of, well, the next one is like, they want my ideas for that one. So we're talking about how we're going to establish the look and the feel and mm -hmm. what the characters are going to look like and all these things. So those ideas now are bouncing around the office. And uh, that's the kind of thing I want to be doing is I don't, um, I don't, I mean, I want to make games and I want to make games that, my team is as invested in as I am because I, I want them to feel like they can contribute creatively and not just be told 
what they're going to make and how. And I think to go back to the, you know, this working with just freelancers or heavily freelancers on a project, I think there's a certain amount of that. Like, it's like, well, tell me what I'm going to make, you know, what Mm -hmm. assets am Mm -hmm. I churning out or like what, what's this UI going to look like? Uh, But you don't get that day-to-day collaboration with each other and bouncing ideas off each other and watching the thing emerge. I mean, you know, our, our writing meetings for, uh, for Broken Spectre, the projects that I keep referencing are, mm-hmm. that's, you know, think of how those have gone, right? Like, it's just, every time we meet, it, it grows and grows and grows and grows. Yep. We're more excited about it. And uh, that's, that's the kind of environment that I want my team to exist within. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't want to say that you can't be invested in a project as a freelancer. I mean, case in point, I, I'm fully invested on on Broken Spectre. I love that project. Um, but I think, uh, you know, f- just for argument's sake, I work on that project with you and we don't work together again then then that that moment or that that aspect what i brought to that project and what we worked on together is a part of of your company's history that isn't accessed anymore so uh, i think a lot about a company that you and i have referenced as video game developers uh which is remedy and they did the max Payne series they did the one that we talked about a lot which was alan wake yeah and i i got to see uh some of their team talk at uh the montreal uh international game summit a few years ago about quantum break which is the game they made which was in sort of created as a television show and as a video game i don't think it was actually on tv but they sort of designed it to be this sort of episodic show with game elements and they had actors um one of the guys from game of thrones whose name i forget a little finger essentially and um uh i keep saying sean astin but it's not sean astin it's Iceman. oh ashmore ashmore Ashmore. sean ashmore sean ashmore yeah so um so i think with with Alan Wake, even they had started doing this sort of like previously on Alan Wake in between chapters. It was a very sort of television format video game. And they started doing that with Quantum Break. And they also talked about how building this game that was meant to be both uh, like essentially a transmedia experience that was like a huge epic story that would be told on television and film plus a a game. And initially they had conceived it to be something that was, was shown on television. And it all just sort of was pulling the creative and the team in so many different directions. Um, They had actually two teams working on it at the time and the game didn't, I think it didn't do as well as they had hoped or didn't achieve some of the goals that they had expected for it. But at the end of the conference of the um, presentation, they said the one thing that we got out of this for sure was that we now have two teams so we can work on two projects simultaneously. And I just, my jaw dropped. I thought this is remedy that's been around since Max Payne. <laughs> I don't know how many years, and they're now starting to contemplate two simultaneous projects. And as I, I think at the time, I was working on six projects at the same time for, <laughs> for one client. Right. So, well, it it divides you. That's the yeah. crazy thing. Is I mean, I think they're doing it right. Like it shows their games are so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I've been incredibly fortunate. Like we were working on Flowever, and that's all I thought about for a year, uh, more or less. Um, but it 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 really takes it out of you. And to 
it doesn't sound like a lot, but to have multiple projects that you're bouncing between, um, the bigger they get, the harder it gets. And it, it really, you got to be in, I, I think I, I do better work when I'm fully in the thing and I don't have to multitask creatively too often because um, I'm somewhat of an obsessive person when it comes to things that I'm interested in. And uh, I try to carry that over into my work, which, you know, making video games, I'm interested in mm-hmm. it. And I want to tell cool stories and I want to make fun games. So I, I try to channel it into that. And uh, I get kind of one track, I think, you know, working on Flow Weaver. That's like I said, I've just, I don't really want to think about anything else as often, you know, as little as I can. And the same was true of Terrarium and the same was true of Rival Books. And uh, yeah, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to do many great things at once. I think. Well, we, it, it, I, I, the company I work for today, there were three different pitches they wanted me to talk about. And for each one I had to, I honestly had to channel my focus and forget everything else. Like it was so difficult because while I'm trying to think up an answer for one pitch, I'm getting messages on Slack about this other pitch and then pre-messages about this other pitch. And I, I just like keep replying like, hey, could you shut up? Like for, <laughs> you know, and, and, and because I have to stay on, like I couldn't just quit Slack and I couldn't just turn everything off for me to work. But it was like, I just, I can't talk to you right now. I really need to focus. And I like, and I have my own projects I'm working on that I then had to talk to my boss and say, hey, listen, can we reschedule to tomorrow? Thinking I would have time at some point today to work on the thing I said I would do. And meanwhile, it's eight thirty-seven in the evening and I didn't even touch it. Yeah. It, so focus is important. Something a few years ago that I, um, that I found that helped me out immensely was when I, when I started making this shift from, you know, studio director, working on all these, you know, producing all these client projects of various sizes to we're going to, do our own games. You're going to run this games team and figure this stuff out. And I started doing more hands-on creative work, game design work and story development and all these different things was um, it seems so simple, but realizing that I was just screwing myself and my teammates up with the way I was like scheduling things. Hmm. I read this, you know, relatively well-known, although I can't remember the name of it right now, uh, blog post that was about uh, manager time and creator time and how the two different parts of the company look at the workday so entirely differently based on what their needs are. Um, and, and basically it came down to, you know, managers prioritizing, squeezing things in, having meetings whenever you can. You're bouncing from one thing to the other constantly and doing as much as you can in a day and there's always room for another thing. And then creator time being, um, you know, like the developers or the artists or the writers uh, mm-hmm. needing blocks of time where they know they don't have to think about anything else to get in the zone and do good work. And how easily it is to disrupt that by scheduling a meeting in the middle of it or even just having a phone call in the yep. middle of it or whatever. <laughs> and as I transition to a lot more creator time, uh, in my day-to-day role, I just realized, you know, 
what I'd been doing <laughs> to my team and, uh, and, and was doing to myself because I was like, I, I'd have days where I just couldn't get anything done. You'd finish one meeting and you'd, you'd want to be giving your attention to something or writing something and your next meetings in 30 minutes. And like, that's, that's barely yeah. enough time to get in the right yep. mindset and do yeah. anything. So well, I, you- I had to realize that. And I, you know, I, it's helped immensely. Just, I, I think, I, I like to think my team thinks I manage them well, but I try to give them that we do our morning meetings and then you're on your own for the day to do, mm-hmm. to do your stuff. And, you know, we talk on Slack and there's always emergencies and things, but I try to not uh, meddle in the bulk of their day when they should mm-hmm. be creating things. I have, I have often advocated for having uh, at least an hour between meetings for anyone that there's a buffer time because you need that time to go over what happened in the meeting, take your notes, write things down, make a plan. If there's anything you as a creator need to do to make changes. But if you have half an hour that, you know, you have time to maybe grab a coffee and, and, and take a, a bathroom break before the next meeting, you don't have time to digest what happened and, and make that plan. So you come out of the second meeting having to do that for both. And then you're like, I don't even remember what happened in the first meeting. Whereas my, my mindset's in a different place right now. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, yeah, it's interesting. I like that management versus creative. I, I used to talk about it as being sort of like the, the producer led studio versus the artist led studio. Right. And pro- producer led studios might get more done in a day, but, uh, they don't ne- have nearly the same level of quality of creativity as a, a creative led studio. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the person who runs or is the studio lead is a creative versus a producer. It just means the philosophy, right? You can have, you can clearly have producers in charge of projects or, or the studio itself, but I think they need to have a, a, a mindset that is focused on the creativity rather than on just production. Yeah. So it's a good way of putting it. Um, So that, for me, that was like a breakthrough that I had sort of in my own professional development was just uh, that I need the time too, because, you know, it's like even 90 minutes I find is not enough for me to do anything more than like bounce some ideas around and make some notes. But, um, you know, if I need to work on a game design document or, um, you know, a story Bible or something like that and actually write something and create something. I, I two hours is a starting point for me yeah. to like spin, yeah. get the hamster in my brain spinning, <laughs> yep. get the wheel going and like start doing something. Um, so, you know, I've had to put my foot down too and just, you know, tell other team members, like, don't schedule me in anything because I need to, I need to do something today. Like just pretend I'm not here. Uh, and that, that was like a hurdle I had to get over because I was so used to being like, I'm available for calls at any time. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, listen, it's, it's a big difference between respecting someone's time and overburdening them, you know, like the, there's a certain level and it, it, it sounds like we're just complaining about not having enough time, but, <laughs> but like, but the, the funny thing about it is that you, you even even when it comes to the producer led company versus the the creative led company the producer still has to get stuff done they still have to get communications out in a lot of cases what i communicate to the producers that i work with is you know 
we have multiple offices. One office is Salt Lake City. They're two hours behind. And we have an office in Vancouver that's three hours behind. So they'll, I'll get a meeting request for their, you know, whatever, Birthday. four o'clock. And yeah. that's seven o'clock PM for me. And I'm like, I can't take this. I can't take this meeting. They're like, well, this is the only place. This is the only opening we've got. I'm like, well, I, man, I don't know what to say here. Like you you got me in a, a jam. So there's a certain level of understanding and they're, they're pretty, actually pretty good about not like actually respecting time zones and, and stuff like that. But it is a conversation that you have to have. You have to be upfront with them and say, you know, if you want me to be as productive as possible, you need to give me as much time as possible. Mm-hmm. Whatever check-ins you think you need, can they be done with a message? Can I, message you yes or no and can you be okay with a one-word answer yeah. <laughs> like i'm still thinking you know what i mean and now this all i mean changed going remotely with uh mm-hmm. you know covid lockdowns and everything uh we we actually are just fully remote now i packed our office up back in october and it's in a storage unit because who, who knows when it's going to be worth paying rent again and uh so there's this this weird dichotomy of like you're as alone as often as you want to be now because you can just not pick up a Slack call and feeling like we should be more in contact because we can't just look over each other's shoulders anymore to see, you know, the latest uh, character rig or, or scene or renders or, or whatever it is. Um, so that element of collaboration has gotten a little bit more difficult. And uh, I mean, as I'm sitting here saying all this stuff I'm, about how like I'm giving my team their time and everything, I'm sure if they're listening they'd be like you're full of shit you bother me constantly for things <laughs> so uh who knows uh, i'm trying <laughs> they're not they're not listeners <laughs> but we are going to send them all a link to yeah. the episode so they can hear and, and this is the moment when they all go like this oh, wayne <laughs> uh w- 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 with with the team being what it is and 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 you you have you have created sort of this core group and there are, are there people coming in um has there been an adjustment of a welcoming of ideas like it, it when when you're like you know flow weaver is what it is and you've been working on it for a year there must have been conversations in between that where you're like hey listen if you have an idea like come to us and let's talk about it like you and evan and whomever else is the is the you know sort of the top group do you, do you have projects that you're like, yeah, we have a list of these things that have come from, you know, from the bottom up that are people that have a really good idea? Yeah. I mean, we, this goes back to what I was saying before about wanting to keep them invested. I, on Flowweaver, we did tons of that. Um, it's to do a little creative setup here. It's a, it's a, a, adventure escape room game where you play somebody who's trapped in place in a prison cell, but you have the ability to sort of rip open reality and go to another layer of the same place. So there are like seven different versions of the same room that you can be in that are all different from each other. Like, you know, one is, uh, you know, a a dead place where nothing grows and one is a lush forest and one is like this beautiful, um, a floating island in the sky, but they're all metaphysically tied to the place where you are physically. So 
all of that to say we had some pretty fantastical environments to create and um we had you know basically a world and creative bible excuse me from the creative team at silver string as our starting point and then i did my best to let my art team just come up with wild ideas for like you know what what does the here's a perfect example one of the one of the worlds that you're in is a uh underground chamber where you're sitting above a pit of lava the original um the original pitch for that world was you're just sitting on this rock chair that's jutting out from the wall behind you so if you look down you're suspended over a big giant pit with like castles and lava that seems to go on forever and the cavern around you is where the, the puzzle stuff all is if you, you know, you drop something, it falls. And you have to wait for it to respawn and get another one. <clears throat> um, one of our artists, Kelvin, uh, that was one of the first places in the game that we made sort of as a, as a vertical slice to kind of get the pipelines working and the teams in sync. And uh, one of our 3D artists, Kelvin, just came up to me and he was like, can I do something more elaborate than a stone chair? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, you know, I want you guys to come up with crazy stuff. And he's like, well, here's, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And uh, he had come up with this concept for this, like, this uh, sort of like rig that you're sitting in with all these moving bits and pieces that you pull around, uh, like a workstation rig suspended, right. you know, patched together from like pipes and bits of grate and stuff like that. And uh, he's like, I just, I think it would make the space so much cooler and it really did. It you know it ties the room together, so to speak. But we we changed the puzzles in the room and the things the player was doing in the room to be more about this chair that the player is sitting in. Um, you know, there's there's pieces you can crank to like bring machinery over to you, and uh, things you can pull into view and out of view and stuff like that. And it just became this this amazing set piece that wasn't originally supposed to exist, but it was a good idea from someone on the team. So. Uh, I didn't see any reason why we wouldn't like pursue that because it made it better. So, well, and it, and it gives that, that particular person a, a feeling of ownership, right? Yeah, exactly. Like kind of a, like they get to, they get to say, this was mine. Like out mm -hmm. of all of this, Hey, by the way, what did you think of the stone uh, mechanism chair? And then like people are like, oh, that I loved it. Yeah, that was the best part of the game. You told me all about it six months ago. So, so I know what you're talking is, about. Uh, is full of things like that where we just uh, we just let them like gave them the creative freedom, you know, with within the brief that they had to come up with mm -hmm. with new things that uh, that hopefully gave them that feeling. Yeah, I think I was I was alluding to the idea that that there's opportunities for new projects that have come out of the team. That, that's not just like you say, I, I'm going to do, I, this is what we're working on next. Or Evan says, we're going to work on this next. Or like, has there anybody been coming up going like, Hey, by the way, I've got this idea. Like, I mean, our whole pr premise of the podcast is I've got this idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, like, have you, have you found that in general mm -hmm. from, from the, the people you're working with that, that yeah, they're just like, man, I have got tons of ideas. Definitely. Um, the, the starting point for broken specter was actually very much that um, I'm not sure how much I can or should <laughs> say about it, but the, 
the starting point for that was basically just like a team, like, what are we doing next kind of meeting? Yeah. You know, Evan and I talked at length because we, you just have this stable of, of ideas and like that never came to fruition. So there were a couple of things we wanted to draw from and we had a lot of back and forth about like, well, where do we go next? And um, I started having meetings with, uh, with the team and especially the art team, because one of the things I knew is I want to make a very art forward game. And I want to make, I want to kind of like set them loose. So we right. started talking. I was like, here's a few nuggets. We're bouncing around and like a concept that we think will be cool. And uh, what do you think? And what would you do with that? And we started, we started talking and um, that was the formation of what is currently broken specter. Um, and there were, you know, ideas that came out mm -hmm. of that, that were like, well, if we're going to find pieces of media with clues that like, uh, you know, a VHS tape that you're popping in or something like that, what if we actually transported you there so that you're in the past and not just watching the past and that we can do these cool screen effects and we can, you know, change the way that you're actually perceiving the world. So very much so that's um, our next project came out of, of that process. Awesome. Awesome. I think, I think one of the things that we, you know, we, again, as part of the podcast is, is the, the fact that not everybody has ideas. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, you know, we, those, those of us that are burdened with a great imagination and, and no funding to make it happen, uh, tend to think that ideas fall out of the sky. And it's like that for everybody only to discover there's a whole bunch of people with money that have no ideas whatsoever. And it's, it's so refreshing to talk with people like you, you in particular, obviously tonight, but people like you who embrace ideas and embrace, you know, making them happen. I think that's, I think that's definitely one of the things that I have most been grateful for over this, the, the course of this podcast. Yeah. It's the hardest part. I mean, if, if I just had way more money, think of the things <laughs> I could do, right? It sounds familiar. It sounds super familiar. We, we, uh, <laughs> money and time, money and time. Uh, someone who, who actually used to be on our team, um, Natalie Walshots that, that you did a couple episodes with about Hench. Right. Uh, yeah. I think with a, for about two years was with us. Uh, she did the bulk of the writing for Terrarium. Um, that one of the, we we're talking about mistakes earlier. One of the mistakes we made on that game was the name because it's hard to pronounce. It's hard it's to pronounce. Terrarium. Terrarium. <laughs> um, but uh, she, yeah, she, she did so much writing for that game and there were supposed to be parts of that game that never came to fruition that she wrote pages and pages of stuff for. But um, she was definitely, you want to talk about like the team inspiring each other and things like that. Um, I mean, I, I listened to the episodes. I know how talented you think she is. <laughs> she, uh, she is just so, so fun. To... <laughs> no, no, no. I know how talented you think she is, but I'm here to set the record straight. <laughs> She's even more talented. Oh, than she, uh, there you go. <laughs> you know, she, she would come up with ideas that were just like, well, we have to do this now. You know, she, yeah. she helped shape the, the way we were doing things during production because uh, she, you know, we, one of the things she had to do was like, it's a, it's a maker game. So you can build your own levels and we have all these 3d assets and things. And, and, you know, we we're like, 
Natalie, here's a hundred rocks and 50 trees and some cactuses. Can you write a little description for each one? Because we wanted there to be this field guide that you, you build as you play. Um, she just went and did that. She wrote like, you know, 500 descriptions for all these things. And they're so funny. They're so funny. Uh, and part of her doing that was like, we, we were picking the ones that she wrote the best descriptions for, because to a certain extent, when you're building an asset, uh, a library, you get to a point where like, it doesn't matter what the asset is. It's there for, for decorations. It's going to work. So if there was one that she wrote a particularly funny description for, we were just like, okay, that one's going in, you know, the daddy rock <laughs> where she wrote, you know, things like that. And uh, that game had so many little nooks and crannies of writing that right up to when we, we launched it finally in July during COVID, there were things I'd never even seen before that she'd written that I was discovering. Um, so it just, it just, you know, that was a, a real pleasure to, uh, to be a part of. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. kind, well, kind of trailed off there at the end, but no, 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 no it's a trailing <laughs> off. Doesn't matter. It's so we, 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 we edit it. And all of a sudden you sound think, like we yeah, were right on the like ball. I'm a genius. Yeah. I think my point was <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> We See, you thought you even, you thought that you'd be like, oh, I got it under control. Yeah. This happens to us all, my friend. Even as a, um, you know, she was she was doing this creative writing for this project, but we were taking game design and gameplay direction sometimes from like funny stuff she was writing about hmm. farts, you know, and and putting it in the game. So we try to do as much of that as possible. It just makes it more it's more fun. That's good. I find so another thing that you mentioned as well is that you had uh you know ideas that were either on the back burner or ideas that had never seen the light of day, which sounds very familiar to Hugh and I because that's really how this whole thing got started was talking about our ideas that we never got out there. Um and one thing that I had had done in the past, which is just go back over my old ideas folders. Pull out, pull out those ideas and, and look at them. And in some cases, just think, you know what? It's time to to bury this one. But there's one one little bright point in here that's like, this is this is a neat visual idea. I'm, I'm going to hold on to that. Or over here, I'm like, These, this is a, a, a decent set of characters, but the idea is half-baked. Like the, the mm. characters are cool. The idea is just not great, uh, you know. But it's a, supposed to be a book. But what if I made that a game? It doesn't really right. fit into a game. And I'd be like, but that's not what it's supposed to be. But then I just think, but what if? What if it does go there? What if I did change it? How would it change? How could I use those characters in the game? Oh, and what if I use this visual idea over here? And then I start putting similar ideas or ideas that are adjacent to each other together, even if you know one is a story idea and one is a, a visual idea. And all of a sudden, I have this package that is now using the best parts of six older ideas that I've just decided, okay, they don't work so well on their own, but if I put all these elements together, right. it's it's nothing like the original ideas, but it's something new. How important do you think it is to have that library of not necessarily past failures, but ideas that just sort of meandered and then trailed off and didn't go anywhere? And how do you identify those? Like just for people who are trying to do this, who... Yeah who have ideas that know they aren't going anywhere. When do you know to let go? When do you know to 
hold on to something for future use? And how, how do you even go back and find things and figure out how they fit into something you're working on now? Well, I think that you, you never let go in the sense that maybe it won't be the thing you're making, but just write them down. I mean, I, I have a, you know, I, we do everything in the cloud now and I just have a document where I just put ideas and some of them are a sentence and some of them are two pages and, uh, but they go in there and they evolve and you just go back to it and you keep it. And I mean, we have that on the company level too. Like I was alluding to, we have, you know, we have a development slate of things that never came to be that is just full of stuff that we thought was the best idea in the world at the time. But um, <laughs> we go back to that too. Like we're, we're constantly in, in brainstorming sessions or, or things being like, Oh, do you remember like project X? Oh yeah. You know, that, that part, that's the part we should pull that. And, and, you know, so we do that constantly and having the reference material to go back and, and grab is, is amazing because I, I think that, you know, both, structurally and creatively like every everything that we're making is just sort of this like conflux of bits and pieces of other things whether it's a story that is you know stolen from a dozen other places like there's no true creative like originality anymore right like we're all just making homages to other things with that we thought were cool uh and we're, we're just like playing games with neat mechanics and thinking about like oh i'd like to do something like that someday and so that's you know that's kind of what you do is just you you fit your pieces together in this conflux it all converges and then mm there's a process of organizing it into, into a thing. And if you're lucky, the thing gets made. Uh, That's kind of what my, I'm reflecting on like what I've been doing or what we've been doing at stitch. That is the best way to sum it up. I think is like, I'm not shy about um, trying to do something different just because it should be different. Um, Mm -hmm. Rival Books of Aster, as an example, when we started making that game, we had a few really simple uh, gameplay mechanics as a starting point. And making a card game, there's this, you're automatically like comparing yourselves to other card games. And you have to have a resource system and you have to get the cards in your hand somehow. And they Mm -hmm. have to do things and be on the board and interact with each other. And there's just these things card games typically do. And when we first started Adam and I designing that game, there was this desire for us to do every, each of those things as different as we could, because we wanted to make a weird game and we wanted, we wanted to be original. And the more we refined and play tested, uh, the more we realized that some things just work and you should just do them. Like, you know, have mana, uh, have a hand of cards, uh, you know, give, mm-hmm. give, give your creatures a life total. Just there's these, these core things that are, there's no shame in like being compared to Hearthstone or Magic the Gathering in certain ways because they're the gold standard of, of that type of game. And uh, it's all about what you do do differently with those pieces to stand out. So... 
Yeah, it's like it's important to ask the question why, right? Like, like look at look at the the thing you're creating and the um, um, the genre it's in. So whether it's a game or or a television series or a video game, card game, and and look at the established sort of parameters of that and ask why, right? Yeah. And and if the if the answer comes back because it makes for a good card game, then you're like, okay, well then it's probably something worth keeping. Uh, but I think in, for instance, in role-playing games, there's been this huge movement now in in sort of independent and like a, a role-playing game revival. A lot of it has to do with there's been all these established mechanics and elements of the role-playing game that are just staples because everyone who's made a role-playing game has stayed within those boundaries. And a couple of games have come out and said, why? Why can't we do something different? And in some cases, it's even limitations. So for instance, a game that, that uh, I've been playing a lot of is Blades in the Dark uh, by John Harper. And um, it's a game that is specifically designed for the players to be a group of near-do-wells in a sort of pseudo-Victorian fantasy setting, you know, Oliver Twist-esque where you're just, a, or gangs of New York, uh, and you are literally just this one type of gameplay it's not a it's a sandbox but it's not a game where you can be anything you can be anything within these these confines but because of that all the systems of the game are designed understanding that you are a group of of, of up-and-coming criminals or gangs so it works it, it can build off of that assumption whereas if you played something like um well the, the grandfather of all role-playing games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Never heard of it. <laughs> you, you have Dungeons to be... And, Dungeons and Dagrons? I no, no, no. no. Yeah, Here, what, let, what even is a Dagron? Uh, <laughs> I know you had a point. I'm sorry. I, no, no, I'm still... Was, I'm giggling internally because you said ne'er-do-well, and I thought, how long have you been waiting to slip that one into oh, the conversation? Oh, it's a good word. <laughs> <laughs> No, and game... it, it, sorry, and I, I'm I, you're, no, no, you're you, talking about the gameplay mechanic. Sorry, you're talking about the gameplay mechanic, and I think that we we fall into this over and over again. And I, you know, even when it comes to video games, we fall into this. You can jump, you can double jump, you can pick that thing up, you can drop it, you can hit, you can kick. You know, it, anytime someone makes a game that has a slightly different mechanic, mm-hmm. everybody's up in arms. And meanwhile, it's just, well, I don't know. I mean, the Switch has the A and the B buttons opposite from the xbox and every time i pick up my xbox controller i hit a thinking i'm hitting b and it throws me off but you get used to it these things are the whole purpose of these things is is to be innovative and interesting so if you're just going to make the same game somebody else made what's the point mm-hmm. you know well i mean well, think about- to, to play the devil's advocate a little a little bit i think that did you yeah. make the same game everybody else made? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in my defense. <laughs> what, what, I, what I was getting at was that conventions are fine. Like, pick your For conventions sure. because there's a familiarity to a player that is so important on a base level um, that as a starting point, that's great. And then figure out what's different about it. For sure. I, I think is what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Um like Especially I, in a card game, right? Especially in a card game. Yeah. Well, I think in any, you know, even in like a, a platform or, a, you know, Metroidvania style game, like I, I finally uh, got Metroidvania. around to playing, nice. um, uh, Hollow Knight because it's a, it's a PlayStation Plus free game this month. And I know how great it is because I've been reading about it for like three years, but I finally got around to playing it. And my first thought was like, 
oh, it's like Ori in the Blind Forest, uh, which I love, which is like all these other things. And it's, it's just like a style of game that is, you know, is popular right now. And um, I know that's not all it is, but immediately there was a familiarity there to me that gave me a starting point. And it didn't make me be like, this is an Ori ripoff. I'm not going to play this. Mm-hmm. It, gave mm-hmm. me a, it gave me a position to approach playing it from. There's a language I was familiar with. And like, I'm already frustrated that I can't double jump or dash yet, but I'm expecting I get those abilities mm-hmm. the, the more I play. Um, and I think that that is fine because it's, it's a genre and it's a, there's a language to it that players expect. And then you tell a great story and pick an art style and do, you know, do different things within that framework. So that's what I'm advocating for. That's kind of the thing that makes the Zelda games so interesting because their mechanics are so different while maintaining the, the status quo of attack, you know, pick up, collect, questing based but then you know one is going to be about music and one is going to be about drawing and one is going to be about you know waving a wand or whatever and i think that's that's like when you look at for instance skyrim skyrim being sort of the the litmus test for rpg games before that it was kind of Baldur's gate in my opinion you know what i mean like that was the kind of game that you're like and Baldur's gate was actually a, a dungeons and dragons game wasn't it Yep. Yeah. So you, you sort of look at those sort of questing RPG esque things that become I'm going to play this by myself and, and instead of being part of a party, and I you know I I think that when you base your story, you 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 start with your story and then you create your game that gives you a better game um, game mechanic or not a game mechanic but a better game overall because if the story's solid the game can follow through it. Yeah, I think um, absolutely. I agree. And um, you know, t- talking about you know trying, uh, you know, if you try to make everything original and everything so different, it's not going to make the game any more more memorable. And I think a lot about um, Metal Gear Solid and this moment where you are fighting a boss named Psycho Mantis who can read your mind. And it's impossible to beat because the machine just reacts to everything that you're doing and you can't get a beat on, on this guy. He's just impossible. And he keeps taunting you about how he reads your mind. And I remember playing through this part and being super frustrated and trying to figure things out. And uh, you have your, um, your superior officer who you can contact over comms. And if you do that at enough times, um, he'll tell you to plug your controller into port two. So we're talking about like pre wireless controller days. And as soon as you do that, you still control your character, but now psycho mantis can't read your mind. And it's just, it's, I, I, I will remember that until (laughs) the day that I die. And it's, it is just a small piece that is outside of the, or even another part of that game. it, 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 there's a code on the box look for the code on the box. And, I, and I'm like, what? And I'm looking through my inventory for a box. There's a cardboard box disguise. So I put it on and I'm trying to rotate around to see a code. I can't find any code. I have no idea what this game's talking about. And then I realized we're talking about the box of the actual game that I, that I purchased, the box that the CD was in. Um, so there's these, Breaking the fourth wall, man. Yeah, but there's a, <laughs> there's a couple of moments in that game that are just so beyond what the rest of 
gamedom was like. You know, I would never have thought to do that because that's what what a game does. And I think that, you know, Hideo Kojima, the uh, the creator of Metal Gear Solid, who's moved on to other games, has done other weird stuff and has has broken other expectations in games in in his creations. And I think he's maybe gone a little bit more back into what exists within the game, but he's always very aware of the the sort of meta gaming aspect of video games. I think that's something that, you know, Hugh, you and I have talked about this from a story perspective before is, is as a player of a character in a game, you are, you have to be aware that your audience is, um, is aware of the genre. And I think that's why we see even in films, things like the Marvel cinematic universe where characters talk about uh, things in a way that their audience would, right? They're, they don't, they don't have conversations like serious superheroes. They sometimes have conversations like fans, like comic book fans. Yeah. Wayne, how have you found going between 2D to a 3D to virtual reality? Are you Do you feel that that's part of the evolution of the studio as a whole? Or is that more of an interest of, you know, hey, we should try this? Or what, where, where is that all going for, for Stitch and for yourself? I mean, I want to do more VR. The, the, v, the, learning, the VR learning curve has been the steepest yet, I would say. Because, I mean, you have the problem of not making users sick. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty big hurdle to overcome. And we're still sort of as like a community learning about the best practices for everything to do with VR. You know, as the, as the gear gets better and the pipelines get better. So we're, we definitely want to be, we, we will be making more VR games. Uh, but you know that's not all that I want to do, or I think all that that our team wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're certainly headed there, and I think as we're talking about not making the same mistakes again, I mean, I, I, I'd like to make two games in a row that are the same format at least. Uh, well, I've got a team who now knows how to do it, and uh, you know we've gotten you know a dozen Oculus headsets to build with. We've got all the gear, we've got all the knowledge. So we'll, we'll be doing more VR, uh, but you know, definitely we're, we're always adding to that stable of ideas. I've got non VR games I want to make. I've got uh, conversations sort of ongoing all the time with team members about like what we want to try and what we don't. So I don't think it'll be exclusively what we do, but it's certainly going to be the next thing that we do. And I mean, who, who knows? Like, maybe it will be. Maybe all I'm going to do is VR. And Stitch is a relatively small team in that, you know, you can't you can't say to them, hey, you're going to be VR and you're going to be plat, you're going to be, you know, Steam or whatever. Like, you're, you know, not Steam, but like plot console or whatever. Like, that's not a, is that a possibility for Stitch? Not, not really, because I mean, our games team is, uh, team. is pretty... <laughs> pretty lean, <laughs> pretty lean. About yeah, you know, maybe a third of the company to half the company at any of the time at any given time is doing the uh, the other stuff. Right. Uh, not, not to downplay it, but like the the client work they're doing amazing. Like you know, interactive documentaries and you know, um, interactive gamified educational tools. And there's this whole other side of the company that is like doing amazing work constantly and, and they're they make up about a third to a half of the team depending on 
on what we're doing at any given time. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cut the size of the team in half to begin with. And then what you're left with, I, I definitely don't concurrent production would be super hard with the size of team that we have. Right. Uh, but that being said, you know, the skills are transferable to whatever. There's no reason that, uh, you know, the 3d artists can't make, um, 3d art not for vr or transfer over to doing you know 2d animations or just um so we we could but yeah and, and yeah that's not a I, I was thinking more along the lines of a future sort of pipeline where you're i i, I was i i think i was unaware that you were also doing client production work right. that that was where i was i was sort of uh in a in a state of not knowing <laughs> I would, I would, um, I would, I'm a -do -well. <laughs> I would love to be doing multiple types of games at a time. Um, but it just takes so much coordination, mm -hmm. uh, and so much of anyone's energy to sync up on one thing that it's for sure, so for sure. I, we'll have good problems if we get to that point where I can have multiple games mm -hmm. happening at once. And like the 2d team and the VR team, you know, that's, I dream of that day. It's a good dream to have. Something that I think about quite often is how there is a difference between that sort of media work, that media uh, service work, like you were describing that part of your company does, and and games development, uh, and a, and a lot of that has to do with the um, the cycle or the schedule of the the project. I mean, working in in media uh, content production. So creating like interactive documentaries, like you were saying, or, or ad campaigns, uh, you're usually looking at a, at a one to three month cycle for a project. You know, it comes into the studio, you create it for the client, and then it goes out the door. Uh, but with games, you're talking about a development time that can last years. You know, when you look at some, some of the um, development times of AAA titles, uh, you know, five years is not out of the question, which is which is crazy long and, and not something that you would see on an independent level. But what you do then have is a huge shift, which is rather than just handing off a project to a client, you now have to put out your game and promote it and, you know, work with your, you know, hopefully your fan base uh, through Steam or through social media or on Twitch, you know, uh, and that's something that I think a lot of uh, media production companies then run into trouble with because they're not used to that. They're used to, you know, like wringing their hands up. Oh, we're done with this project now. It's in the client's hands. And and they're not prepared for that whole, you know, live phase of a project. So have you encountered any kind of uh, issues there? Uh, you know, like I'm thinking back to, you know, your initial comments about, uh the book books of aster and you know trying to build a a, a, a player base yeah it's i mean support is a whole other beast it's it's definitely difficult because um we encountered that with with rival books of aster definitely trying to get a player base and then realizing uh you know when you have them that you've not you know we know we have to fix bugs but when you're running a game with like live servers and and things like that there's an urgency to making sure it works because people are there in the moment and it's not you know it's not working so keeping your servers going and thinking about you know rolling out new content because no mm -hmm. matter how much content you think you have uh the fans that you find will get through it quicker than you 
ever thought mm-hmm. possible and want yep. more immediately. And, and, and you're, you know, still riding high on getting the thing out the door and released. And somebody already wants to know what the, what the schedule of new content looks like to get, yep. to get more, which was a, a crazy thing to, to learn. Even on a, on a game are small, there were people asking for, for new stuff right away, which is like flattering, but also terrifying. Um, so yeah, we encountered all of that stuff definitely. And, uh, you know, we continue to as well. There's constant talk of, you know, are we going to port and what's involved in what platforms should we try and get onto and what's involved in that. And, um, and yeah, just being, being a small company, uh, you know, so far without, um, a publisher publishing either of our released games, you're responsible for building a community and getting the word out. And, uh, and it's, it's difficult. It's definitely difficult. It's, and it's a big job. It's, it's not something that you can just like send a few tweets and it happens. You need to be actively pursuing it at all times aggressively and talking to people and, you know, now running discord servers and there's just a lot to it. So that's something that we've also got better at. Um, you gotta, you, you need to start marketing your game when you start making it and, and, building mm-hmm. a community before it's even playable. Right. Uh, even if the community is one person, because you get that ball rolling and then there has to be someone there to buy it on the day it comes out. Hmm. And it has part of that been like for, for flow weaver in particular, since it's going to be out in, you said January, February, uh, quarter one court. So somewhere yeah. in Q1, uh, because of your history, having done two games previously, do you sort of have any kind of built-in sort of fan base with Stitch where you can say like, oh, Stitch announces we're starting this VR game and, and people are kind of already excited? Or is it is it that like the instant you did it, you're like, well, we know through experience we need to begin the branding exercise, the marketing exercise right at the beginning. So is that... How, how did you approach it? It's more the second thing. I, I definitely, I, I would love to be at the point where people were excited just for another Stitch Media game, but uh, it's I coming. It's coming. I hope so. I, <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. Uh, but we, we went into it knowing that you have to have a marketing plan that's like rock solid and ready to go as early as possible and then mm-hmm. start working on that, you know, while we're building the game getting the ball rolling on marketing the game and getting the word out and things like that so that started way early for us yeah and uh, you know we're months out from release but our big marketing push is sort of ongoing right now um releasing these trailers and trying to get some publications to pick things up and interviews and so all that stuff is happening right now we have an amazing uh social and community team that's sort of in their element right now doing all that kind of stuff i was gonna stuff. say did, like are you so you're not responsible for that like you're, oh god no <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a, it's a it's a legit it's a legit thing like you know the value of it right like you know the value of what they're doing but are you so happy right now that you are not the one responsible for doing it so happy so happy <laughs> i uh <laughs> i don't even i don't even use twitter i just 
Oh man. Uh, it moves too fast for me and I'm too, I'm too, I don't know. I'm just, I'm okay, happy for choose my your life word to carefully, be. whatever you are too much. Of. <laughs> You're too involved in the production of the game itself. You're too involved in the, management of the game let's just pretend like that's what you were gonna say no that definitely i what i was gonna say was sort of on a on a personal level social media in general is too it's too much for me i just it moves too fast it's It's a lot like it's just like it's a younger person's game yeah i can't do it like so i i don't i don't go i don't have a twitter account i i uh i don't have a facebook account i just it, you know, I can barely know, use Discord, which <laughs> <laughs> which is now like the most important thing. So yeah. I'm very happy to not be doing any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I am curious. You said you'd been you'd been working on Flow Weaver for a year. That's not really all that uncommon for games, right? Most especially no. bigger games. So we like we've been making it for about a year, um, which is actually a crazy short amount of time for a game and a game of, of the scope that flow weaver is. I'm amazed that we did it. Uh, but we've been thinking about it and we've been working on it for longer than that. Um, because of the way that games, you know, move through the, uh, the financing system in Canada as you're, as you're, you know, trying to get money for development, uh, provincially and federally, and then trying to get money for production and, and uh, it's been a long, long time that we've been working on it, but we've been making it for a year. Uh, right. And I, and I easily could have, could have taken two. If, like I was saying before, if I just had money, if anybody <laughs> listening has money, you put my email address in the, no, in the no. show if notes. They have, if they have money and they're giving it to anybody on the podcast, it's the people making the podcast. That's just the way that... That's the way that particular ball bounces, my friend. Um, you know, it, it is it is it is a difficult thing, and and you know, as as Steph and I are, are well aware, sometimes things just never seem finished. Mm-hmm. Do you feel Flow Weaver will be finished, or do you feel oh, yeah. it will be as done as it needs to be? Um, done as it needs to be is it's it's finished. Uh, it will be finished. Can I say both? I mean, you can. Yeah. I, don't I don't think there's wanna, anything wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it's so as we, done as it needs to a, be. I don't, I don't think it's a, a problem. Uh, internal saying that we always go back to that Evan has been hammering into my head for nine years now. That is uh, done is better than perfect. And I, I think that sums up the approach yep. that we've had to really learn to take working with such a lean team on such an ambitious project is it will it will never be perfect. Um, if you worry about every detail being perfect, uh, you, you, you have to have, you know, $5 million or whatever. Yeah. You can't afford that, but we can't afford, also to, never be, we can't afford to be done. Exactly. You'll never yeah. release it. And you jeopardize other things by um, not knowing when it's time to call something done and move on to the next thing, because um, you just hold things up and, the game has this moment where enough of it is in place that it you start to see it coming together and you see what it is and that allows you to decide where to shift the focus to 
next in all you know in in all the different aspects of the game and you have to get it to that point but if you yep. longer you take to get it to that point the more you steal from how good the game is going to be because you're mm-hmm. your ability to make those decisions so that's the the hardest part as the like you know director or team leader of a game like this of my job is constantly having to you know tell artists and devs it's done this is what it is no but if i just if you just gave me five more days i could do this i'm like Mm -hmm. well i can't because (laughs) (laughs) you know we we just we don't have the five days and yeah and, and you could do that for everything so yeah you just have to find the balance between doing it justice and making it good enough I think doing it justice and making it good enough are can be the same thing. I think when yeah. you said, "Can I can I say that they're the same thing as as done as it needs to be and also it's finished?" I think that those are those are two very they seem different, but they are they can be the an identical thing. You have a finished product that you're proud of, and generally yeah. that's really what matters. Is do you have a finished product you're proud of? Yes, yeah. I love it. You know, you that's keep your eyes on the finish line because yep. there's so much minutia to get stuck up in. I mean. You know, there are there are dozens of places that I, I wish I had just a little bit more time to like make this system better or this feature is not quite right or change the way something looks or I mean you want to talk about making cuts, uh stuff we cut from the game just because you you have to finish it and release it. Mm-hmm. Um but the most important thing is navigating that as you go and keeping your eye on the we have to release it deadline and trying to get there. So. And keeping those keeping those ideas, like we said before, you know, it's important not to just throw those ideas away. So if it's something that you couldn't put in because of time constraints or budget constraints, it just goes into your back pocket for another pro- project. That's right. So yeah, it's it's tough. It's not fun to be the person that's constantly doing that, <laughs> you know. But someone's got to. Staff, what do you think? I feel yeah. like. I feel like I've, we've drawn out as much as we're going to draw out without getting like super invasive or, or blood <laughs> without drawing blood. That's not, that's not how we, that's not how we no. roll. Wayne. Thank no you. No problem. Thank, thank you. you so, so much. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to have met you. My pleasure. Uh, having been aware of stitch for a long time and actually knowing Evan, uh, that this is this is uh, truly uh, it's been a real it's been a real real treat to talk to you and get a get a feel of the, get an understanding of the inner workings of uh, of Stitch and your process yeah for sure <gasps> and your process oh, my process yeah. which if we were tip, since we're all Canadians we should be saying process but process. but we are Canadians who have spent a lot of time with Americans so we say process all right my trick worked they think I have a process. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. See you.